The following lecture by Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsberg was recorded live and is presented to you free of charge by Gawina Institute. Your donation will help us to bring an ever-expanding selection of quality audio lectures by Rabbi Ginsberg. Gawina Institute is a non-profit organization and all donations are tax-deductible in the USA. To donate, just click on the Donate button on the Inner Dimension homepage at www.inner.org www.inner.org or email us at inner at inner.org So we'll begin with some nigunim to try to warm up our hearts to speak about the Jewish meditation. the auto of the auto Rebbe, the first Rebbe of Chabad, one of the ten Igunim that were composed by the founder of the Chabad movement.
Thomas maybe we'll have some more between we'll make some stops in the talk and we can have an eagle in between the different segments of the of our talk this evening. First since we now begin with a with the violin, so we'll begin with a little meditation on the violin itself. This was not I didn't uh, have this in mind, but uh, inspired inspired by the violin. We're taught one of the basic principles of Kabbalah that everything in the world is continuously being recreated through the means of the letters of its name in Hebrew. So the violin, together with the effect that it produces on our hearts when we listen to it, especially when we listen to it playing an authentic or deep soul melody, so it has to do with its name, which in Hebrew is Kinor. Now, even though there is some speculation nowadays, if this if this instrument that we see and that we just uh, heard is the Kinor of the Bible of the Tanakh, especially the Kinor of King David, the one that played the Kinor, that is the word that we use now for violin, is David Melech Yisrael King David, meaning that the Kinor is identified when we hear or think or envision a kinor, we connect it to uh, David HaMelech, and thereby we connect it also to the Mashiach, the descendant of David HaMelech, with Mashiach ben David. So once more, there's some speculation that this is really the, the original kinor, because the original kinor maybe was some form of a harp, a small harp, rather than a, the violin that we now know. But nonetheless, according to the principle of Kabbalah, that something is connected to its name, and the name that people use with the Hebrew letters that compose that name, so definitely this kinor also that we just heard is related, or very strongly related to its name in Hebrew, which is kinor. And in a certain way, maybe even the original kinor in the time of the Bible has evolved because Kabbalah also speaks of evolution as he evolved into this kinor, this violin. This meaning that if that would be the case, this is the real or ultimate kinor, the kinor that we have here. What is the secret of the kinor? It says in Kabbalah, again, every word and every object can be a subject of meditation based upon its name. The four letters that compose the name Kinor, Kaf, Nun, Vav, Resh, if you can envision that or think in, in Hebrew, it seems to divide into two words or two segments. One is Ner, Kinor, has in it the letters Ner, Nun, Resh. Just like here in Baltimore we have a yeshiva that's a, a world known Yeshiva by the name Ner Yisrael, which Ner Yisrael is the candle of Israel, which is an idiom or a, a, a name of King David. King David himself in the Tanakh is called Ner Yisrael, it's called the candle of Israel. So, Ner means a candle, and the remaining two letters of Kinor, in addition to Ner, are Kafavav. So kafav is explained in Kabbalah not to, not to be a word in Hebrew, but it's that's a number. And the number of kafav is 26. 
26 is the numerical value of Hashem's essential four-letter name that we're going to speak about. The usually referred to as the tetragrammaton because it has four letters. That's what the word tetragrammaton means, the four-letter name. That this is the essential name of God. And it, if it has any meaning whatsoever, it means itself continuous being or continuous bringing into being, implying continuous recreation. The process of continually Hashem Chadesh B'chol Yom Tamid continuously every instant recreating the world. Meaning that the that the word Kinor divides into these two words or symbolizes Ner Hashem, just like the Yeshiva here is called Ner Yisrael, the candle of Israel. There's another phrase idiom in the Torah which is Ner Hashem, the candle of God. The candle of Yudkevavkin, the kinar, this violin, this instrument, and listening to it arouses that, arouses the revelation of that candle of God. What is the candle of God? So if we uh, remember the Pasuk in, in Mishlei and the Tanakh and the Torah, it says, Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam, the candle of God is the soul of man. Because every soul, Every Jewish soul is a candle of God. Why is the soul referred to as a candle? So that's what the continuation of the verse reads. It says, Chofes that it searches just like we take a candle before Pesach to search for the chomets in the house. In the same way the candle inside one's heart searches into the depths of one's being and finds and discovers and reveals all of the unconscious of one's being in order to rectify, in order to illuminate with divine light all of the unconscious together with the consciousness and thereby to, uh, to perfect the human being. That's the purpose, the, the shlichut, the soul and the body is considered to be an emissary sent from God into the body, into the psyche, as the body is not just a physical body, it's the psyche of man, in order to search deep into the psyche, once more into its conscious realm and into its subconscious and unconscious realms that are many, many different strata of the unconscious of the psyche. And the soul of man, which is the candle of God, comes to search and to illuminate it with divine light. One of the means of illuminating the psyche, which itself is not identified or identical with the divine soul itself, is the normative soul of man, sometimes referred to as the animal soul of man. It's the best word that we can use for it is simply the, the psyche of man. And the soul, the divine soul, is sent as a candle to shine into it. That candle shines the strongest during this month of Elul and the coming ten, first ten days of Tishrei. That's the time that we can soul search and with our candle discover all hidden realms within ourselves in order to rectify ourselves. So that's just one word about the, uh, 
about the skula, the uh, the power of the of the violin of the kinor that the violin acts or we'll say augments, even though the violin is is audio and the candle is a, is a visual, but this violin, hearing the violin play, augments the light of the candle of God, which is the soul of every one of us, in order to search deep into ourselves and illuminate ourselves with God's light. God's light is the light of experiencing continual recreation. So this Bashkocha uh, Pratis fits very nicely into uh, into the beginning of what we uh, thought of speaking about this evening, which is Jewish meditation. And since we're now in a very, very auspicious time of the year, which is before the new year, so just like everything that we do, we should try to connect it with the time, all of our learning and all of our thought and all of our deeds in so far as possible to connect ourselves to the time. And since now we're we're rounding up the old year and about to enter a new year, a new year is a new light, as explained in Kabbalah and Hasidut, that all of the light that gave life, the life force of the previous year ascends to heaven, returns and vanishes, disappears just before Rosh Hashanah, and then a totally new light enters into reality. Where do we learn that from? The, there's a phrase in the Torah itself that we read just a few weeks ago, the Torah reading of Ekev, that says, the phrase is, May reshit that God is referring to God's providence over the land of Israel, that through looking over the land of Israel, he sees and he exercises his divine providence over the whole world. First, his eyes are focused upon the land of Israel. And from that focus on the land of Israel, the providence spreads around the whole earth. So in that verse, it says, God's eyes are always focused, concentrated on that place, on Israel, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. This phrase in itself is the only phrase in the whole Torah that there is even a concept of beginning of a year, that there is a new year. Because even though there is a holiday that's referred to many times in the Torah, that we refer to, the rabbis refer to as Rosh Hashanah, the new year, the Torah does not call it the, by this name, the new year. In the Torah, the name of this holiday is Yom Tru'ah, a day of blowing the shofar, because that's a special mitzvah of this day. In our prayers, we call this day Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembrance, because all of our deeds are remembered above, and the books are open, the three books for the tzaddikim and the Rishaim and the Benunim, and we ask, we beseech God to inscribe us in the book of life. So it's called the day of remembrance, that we're remembered. But the normal name, which is the name of the Talmudic tractate that deals with the laws of this holiday, is Rosh Hashanah, the new year. 
So that name and that idea knew where does it come from? It doesn't say in Rosh Hashanah any place in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, but it's alluded to in this phrase that there is a beginning of the year, referring to divine providence over Israel and from Israel over the whole world. And it says from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So in the, the, the Alto Rebbe that we just, the first Nigun that was played just before was one of his ten Nigunim, Kedi Alto. So he asked the question in Tanya, what does it mean from the beginning of the year to the end? Of, why, why shouldn't it just say that Hashem continuously looks over Israel? By continuously looking over Israel, His providence spreads throughout, throughout the world. Why does it have to, what, what is the meaning of the beginning and the end? But there's a year that something begins and something ends. So he says that there is existentially, truly, a spiritual concept which is a year. And a year is one unit of divine light. And that light shines into the world at a certain point of time. And it stays in the world that light also for a certain period and that period of time is just one year and at the end of the year that's why there's a, there's a true Torah count of the end of the year I means the end of this particular revelation and that revelation then ascends and disappears and then a higher level of revelation even though there's a concept in Kabbalah and even in, in Gemara of Yiridata Dorot from Generation to generation, there is a spiritual descent. The further away we are from receiving the, from the experience, the communal experience of our receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai at Har Sinai. So every generation, as a certain descent, is a little bit lower or farther away, removed than the previous generation. But in the inner dimension of reality, we're always ascending. Even though we're further away from the experience of having received the Torah, that that was the apex of our collective communal experience, but we're approaching inwardly, we're approaching the future, which is the experience that we don't yet know, we just believe in, of the Messianic era, the revelation of Mashiach. So vis-a-vis that, that inner dimension we're always ascending and that objectively also takes place because every single year the light that gives life to the whole year as the Torah says from the beginning of the year to the end of the year is a higher level of light than ever was present and revealed in the world that's the phrase from which we both we learn two great uh, things from that phrase. First of all, that there is a definition, a Torah definition of a unit of time, which is called the beginning of the year and the end of the year. God's providence is obviously the idiom is through the means just like a person. God doesn't have physical eyes or any type of eyes. Nonetheless, the Torah speaks in terms that we can understand, in terms of the human, even of the human body in referring to, to God and obviously eyesight providence is eyesight has to do with the light light is the first thing that God created he actually created it 5,700 and, 
And uh, 63 years ago today, today we're just concluding the 25th day of Elul, which is the day of creation, the first day of creation, because the sixth day of creation is Rosh Hashanah, and that's the day that Adam was created. It's one of the simple meanings of the holiday of Rosh Hashanah that we're approaching, is the birthday of Adam Arishon, of the first man, meaning the birthday of all of mankind. This is according to tradition. Man was created on the sixth day, and that was Rosh Hashanah, meaning, retroactively, that the first day of creation is today. Now we're passing, right now this evening, when we're in Davin Mariv now, we're passing from the first day of creation to the second day of creation. There are some people that have the custom, each one of these days, beginning today, if you didn't say it today, you saw the chance, that they even read in the Torah the creation of that day, meaning that today, the 25th day of Elul, those that have this custom read the first five verses of the Torah, which is the account of what God did on the first day, which is the creation of light and the separation of light from darkness. And then it's also implied that there is ultimately a unification of the evening and the morning to become one day. And since day is a term that the Torah defines in this, in the fifth verse itself of the, of the account as a synonym for light, meaning that ultimately all becomes transformed into light, even the darkness becomes a part of the light. First there is darkness, then Hashem says that there be light, and there was light. Then He says, sees that the light is good and it's not worthy, it's not fitting that the light and the darkness be mixed together, so He separates the two. And then it says that God calls the light day, and he calls the darkness night. And then there was evening and there was morning one day. It doesn't say the first day, it says one day, Yom Echad. But that word Yom, he just said, is, is the name for that Hashem called light. So what does that imply? It implies that the evening, which is the night, which is the darkness, and the morning, which is the light, all merge ultimately to become one absolute day, daylight. And once we're not the first day, but just the day of one, that phrase at the end of this creation, the day of one day, is read not as the first day, but one day implying, or it can be read as the day of one. What does it mean, the day of one? The one day that God's ultimate oneness and unity is manifest and revealed throughout creation. That there is yet no independent consciousness which feels itself separate from the one creator. Because the first independent consciousness was created on the second day. The second day is the day that, according to Chazal, a certain level of angels was created. And angels, even though they are high, the good angels are high spiritual beings, nonetheless, to a certain extent, they possess, as we'll go on to, to discuss, they dis possess consciousness, self-consciousness. 
if there is self-consciousness or any other independent state of consciousness throughout reality, you can't call reality as a whole manifest oneness. Even though we believe that God is one and ultimately all is God as well, but it is not manifest. It is not as God desires it so long as someone out there or someone in here thinks that I exist independently of God. But on the first day, the first day is called Yom Echad. One day, meaning there is no other consciousness present in reality other than the consciousness of the Creator Himself. And that truth makes all of reality, even the darkness, merge the same darkness that Hashem split away from the light. But ultimately they become one manifestation of one Creator, of one God. And this is all the the first day of creation, which was today. Now we're passing from the first day of creation, right now at this moment that we're sitting here, we're now passing from the first day of creation into the second day of creation. And as we said, on Rosh Hashanah will reach the sixth day of creation. The second day of Rosh Hashanah is already the original Shabbat, which is called Shabbat Preshit. That's why the two days of Rosh Hashanah will never cease. Even when Mashiach comes, and even in Israel, like nowadays in Israel, you don't have two days of the other holidays. Because the second day is only for Godos. But Rosh Hashanah presently in Israel is two days, and here also throughout the world, the two days of Rosh Hashanah will never cease, even though the Torah Rosh Hashanah is also just one day. But there's something essential about the two days of Rosh Hashanah that it will always be. It's even a little to in a verse in the Prophet says, Yechayenu miyomayim bayom hashlishi yekimenu v'nichyadafanav the verse that reads that Hashem will give us life from two days and then on the third day we will stand up and live before Him forever. So we're talking Kabbalah that this verse refers to the two days of Rosh Hashanah and then the third day is the day of Yom Kippur. And that our life force comes from the two days and then on the third day, the third day is just like the world to come, which is a resurrection. He will lift us up, even those that are not presently alive. And we will live before Him, meaning in His presence. And living before Him is eternal life. So this is a very important verse. He will give us life from two days. Bayom Hashlishi on the third day, Yikimenu he will lift us up and we will live before him. So once more the second day of Rosh Hashanah is originally the Shabbos. That had Adam waited and not eaten from the forbidden fruit on the very day of his creation, what is the repentance? the tshuva of the first day of Rosh Hashanah, we relive and re-experience the creation of man, which is, I'm a part of man, 
and the sin of man, because man was created and sinned on the same day, and that's Rosh Hashanah. Had he himself waited to eat from the Eitzach, Eitzadat, Tovarah, until the evening, until Shabbos, it would have be, become permissible. And it would have even been a mitzvah of Onik Shabbos. And that fruit is the fruit that possesses the, pot- the potentiality, the power to procreate in holiness. When Adam ate from the forbidden fruit on the sixth day, on Friday, before Shabbos, he also procreated. But his, uh, his children, his two children that were born from that, which were Cain and Ebel, were not pure. Cain, Cain was less pure than was Hevel. He went on to murder his brother, as we know. But even Hevel was not a pure soul. That was one of the results of having eaten from the forbidden fruit which gives rise to procreation before the proper time arrived. But had they waited, this explained the Kabbalah, had they waited just three hours, because they couldn't wait three hours to eat from the Eitzadat Tovarah, we the Jewish people were then given a mitzvah that when we enter the land of Israel and plant trees, fruit trees, we have to wait three years in order to eat from the fruit of the trees that we plant. That the first three years are forbidden. Or Allah. Allah is the same word that's used for a uncircumcised male Jewish child. Arel. Or anyone who's uncircumcised, meaning that the fruit is yet non-Jewish it's an Arbel for three years and the fourth year it becomes Kodesh Yiludim Hashem as Kabbalah explains in Tartan Chassidut those three years that the fruit is forbidden is in order to atone for the three hours that Adam and Eve could not refrain and hold themselves back their Yitzhak back from eating of the forbidden fruit, which once more had sexual implications. That's what it arouses in the soul. And because they ate too early, and therefore they procreated also too early, the result was not pure as God had intended. That's all what happens on the first day of Rosh That's what happened. But we have two days in order to do it right. Because every year we get another chance to do it over again. To do it right and to be, to follow Hashem's commandment on the first day. And then, also on the second day, is the original Shabbat, which is the day of, of Hashem's pleasure and creation. And he, he gives us also to experience and to become a partner with him, as it says in Chazal, that whoever keeps Shabbat properly becomes a partner of God in the whole process of creation. As though I was present, and actually we were present, our souls were present before we had bodies. And our souls even gave counsel to God, it says in Chazal, that God asked or took counsel like a king takes counsel before he decides to do something, in the same way the Creator took counsel with our souls 
whether or not to create the world. So we were there with him. There's even a verse in Chronicles that says that we were there with him when he began to do his work, which is the work of creation. We were sitting there together with him as a king taking counsel with his counselors. I said this was just to, to give us a, uh, a certain sense of now the last week before Rosh Hashanah what it implies. In addition to the fact that uh, we began to say Sdichas, which is already the beginning of the experience of the high holidays, the Yomim Noroim, the days of awe. But now especially from today, the creation is now repeating itself. As obviously creation takes place every instant. But this is in the large, in the experience of the large. Creation is now, for five days we have it from today until Rosh Hashanah, until the second day of Rosh Hashanah, which is the primordial Shabbat Breshit. As we said, the custom is to try to remember and even say those verses each day of these days, the verses of creation. And that the meditation of these days every year is a meditation on creation, on recreation. So now we'll turn to the essence of the topic itself, which is just what is Jewish meditation in the first place? What, what is the objective, the goal of Jewish meditation? How, how do we do it? How does Jews do we, are we supposed to meditate? Obviously Jewish meditation is not intended to be like any other form of uh, non-Jewish meditation, like uh, Eastern meditation. Jewish meditation is not just taking some mantra and repeating it over and over again until a person loses sense of his physical senses. Jewish meditation obviously focused on some truth that even though meditation does possess the power to transcend intellect and to reach, as we said before, just like the candle of God, which is the soul of man, to search deep into the unconscious realms of the psyche in order to illuminate those unconscious dark realms with the light of God, the Creator. Nonetheless, Jewish meditation certainly employs the mind. The mind is not the enemy of meditation, as it is in many Eastern philosophies. The mind was given for a good reason, and we have to use the intellect. We have to meditate upon truths that the intellect can grasp and that the heart can emotionally experience knowing what it is experiencing and through the union of mind and heart one arouses or reveals this candle within him of God that searches deep into the unfathomable realms of his uh, of his being, of his inner being. And what sort of brings God's light there? One of the most important verses that describes the meditative process in Judaism is a, is a verse from Psalms, from Tehillim. 
This verse, the second Rebbe of Chabad, that we call the Mitra Rebbe, he quotes this verse on the title page of his treatise on meditation. One of his most important works is called the treatise Kuntus Hayit Bonanot, otherwise known as Shar Hayyichud. And that Kuntus of meditation, which is his, or maybe in all of Hasidic writings, literature, the most important work on meditation, per se. So the verse that he inscribes on the title page is this verse from Psalms, that reads, Bechol Libi Dirashticha. Three simple words. With all of my heart, I search for you. Meaning that by these three words, he is defining already, before starting the, uh, the book, he is defining or making it very clear what I mean, what meditation is. What is it trying to accomplish? Meditation is the search for God, is the heart searching for you, for God. If I say you, it means I already believe, I have, must already have some contact that I can already express myself to you in the second person. Meaning that certainly in the forefront of my conscience as faith, as pure and simple faith, you are present but now once more I use my mind and I try to arouse emotion in my heart and even the mind itself here is referred to as a dimension of the heart it's all called the heart that with all of my heart even the inner mind is referred to in the Zohar and Kabbalah as the inner eye of the heart The very word meditation in Hebrew, hiponenut, as a, when it's used, the verb is used in, in the, even in mundane, in a mundane context. Lihitponen, bemashu, means to deeply observe something. Like if I want to understand, even like a scientist, if a scientist wants to understand some phenomenon in the physical world. So he, the word in Hebrew, you might translate instead of medit to meditate, you might say to contemplate. But it's the same word. The word is lihit bonen, which means to deeply observe something. As deeply as I can possibly look at it, observe it. That's what the word means. In rabbinic literature, the complementary word the corresponding word to hitbonanut, hitbonanut is a biblical word. The word that we use for meditation, hitbonanut, is appears very, very often in the Bible. The, the corresponding Talmudic, rabbinic word is iyun. Like when a person learns Gemara deeply, you call it iyuno. Iyun comes from the word ayin, which means I. Which once more means to look deeply into something. As deeply as you can possibly penetrate into some topic that you're studying. Sometimes the word iyun is simply translated in English as study. Once more, iyun means 
to use your eye, whether it's the physical eye or the spiritual eye, as hard as you can to see into the innermost essence of something, to discover its inner point of truth. And the inner point of truth of everything is obviously that point that connects the creation to its creator. So if I'm meditating upon this physical object, it means I'm trying to look into it so hard that I can see that point of contact between it as a creation and between the life force of the creator that is now in this very moment recreating it. This is just to explain what the word hitbonanut to meditate means. It means it's a it's a studious effort of the soul. Now since it all has to do with eyesight, so the question is where is that eye? So the Zohar, as we said before, says that the innermost eye that makes this effort to observe before it becomes aroused with emotive experience of what it has seen. As if a person sees a wonder, something wondrous, like the wonders of creation, and he experiences God as creating, and these are called pil ehabriya. He experiences wonders. So as soon as he experiences wonders, his heart is, is turned on emotionally. That's the second stage of meditation. And that's a response that takes place spontaneously. That's not due to my effort. Just if I have merited to experience a see, a wonder, so I become aroused emotionally with love of the wondrous creator of the world and with awe standing in the presence of the wondrous creator of reality. But the effort that I made was to, to, to see, to perceive the wonder. Obviously, if a person digs hard to find a treasure, so he must be motivated by some belief that the treasure is really here, otherwise he wouldn't make the effort. So as we said before, everything obviously begins with faith. But I believe that if I dig deep enough, I'm going to find a treasure. That's the faith that must be the beginning of any meditation. But if I really, the stronger that I believe that there's a treasure here, so that will give me more and more motivated motivation to search deeply for it, to dig deeply for it. How do I dig? Dig is, is through, we'll call it the laser radiation of the spiritual eye. I'm looking for it so hard that the eye does not just receive radiation, it radiates, it emits radiation, according to Kabbalah, certainly the spiritual eye. In relation to the physical eye, it also says in Kabbalah that there is radiation that is emitted by the eye, not just received by the eye. There's something that's maybe difficult to understand. But the spiritual eye certainly is an eye that radiates. And by radiating, it's like a laser beam that, that just like now, even a physical operation you can do with laser beams. So in the same way, this laser beam that comes out of the spiritual eye, that's looking for God in creation, in his creation, penetrates deep 
into that reality that you're meditating upon and does in the end discover the point of contact between the creation and the creator. Where is that I? So once more the Zohar says that that I is not in the head, it's in the heart. It's called Ein HaSeichel Shebalev. And that I is able to, to see God through the means of meditation. So once more we're talking about meditation. And Jewish meditation is explained in, the, in Kabbalah and Chassidut. It says that meditation begins from knowing and learning how to use the eye that looks deeply into reality to find the Creator, to find God, the eye inside the heart. As we're going to explain, even Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest of all prophets, it says of him that in his lifetime, before he passed away, he did not merit to see the face of God, only the back of God. We'll try to explain what that means. In the Zohar, there is a dialogue between Moses, who is called Raya Mehemna and Rashbi, Rabbi Bar Yochai. And there's a very amazing uh, part of that dialogue that Rashbi says to Moshe Rabbeinu, that even though you were told and consciously you did not see the face of God, just the back of God, but pe'ein ha'seichel shebelibach at chazekula. In the innermost eye of your heart, that the innovation here is that that eye has its own level of consciousness and unconsciousness. That even that eye of meditation, it knows and it sees, it observes what it knows, but it also observes and sees within its scope of observation, of perception, there is also the unknowable, or that which is not conscious of it. It's present, it's just not conscious. So the Rashpir of Shimbarakai says to Moshe Rabbeinu, even the face of God, that you were told that you can't see, the Torah said that you didn't see it, but deep down, also within that innermost eye of your heart, you saw it was also there. The face was also there. Meaning that since it was there, it was present, ultimately it will also become revealed to you, and since there is a spark of Moshe Rabbeinu in every single Jew, it will become revealed to all. Because all was present in the vision of the innermost eye of the heart. But this is all to try to explain why the second Rabbi of Chabad, the middle Rabbi that we call his name, that when he writes his Kuntus Ayyaspenos, which is Shara Yichud, his treatise on meditation, he begins on the Shar, on the Shar blot, on the cover page, with the verse, Bechol Libi Drashticha, that meditation is searching for Hashem with all of one's heart. Searching for you, that you're already present, searching for you with all of my heart. In chapter 27 of Tehillim, of Psalms, that we say from the beginning of Elo, from Rosh Chodesh Elo until Hoshana Rabbah, the last of the seven days of Sukkot, 
one of the most important verses which is explained in the in Hasidut to relate in particular to our spiritual service of this month and of the month to come is Lecha Amar Libi Bakshu Fanai Et Panecha Hashem Avakesh To you, or the interpretation is for your sake my heart has said Lecha Amar Libi Bakshu Fanai Look for my face Seek my face Et Panecha Hashem Abakesh, your face, God, I will search for. I will seek. First of all, it sounds redundant, and even more so, it sounds it's not nitfashtandik. Uh, it's very difficult to understand. The two phrases that seem the same also seem to contradict one another. Because first it says, Bakshufanai. Research for my face, and I said, I'm going to look for I'm going to search for your face. So, how is this explained in Pshat and especially in Hasidus? It's first explained as follows that a person's heart in this period of time, this period of doing Tshuva, the month of Elul and the month of Tishrei, and even in the days of, of greatest, the greatest joy of the year, which is Chagasukas Mansim Chaseno. So these days, one's heart is awakened, more so, as our hearts are alive and awake, more so than the whole year. And at that time that the heart is awakened, as though I hear my heart speaking to me, just like my heart has an eye inside it, that meditates, observes, and as soon as it discovers the wonder, it becomes... It responds emotionally with love and fear of God, love and awe of God. But first, its effort is to look. That's what meditate means. To look hard, to find God, to search for God. So the heart also is a partzuf shalem, has all of the, its spiritual limbs to it, and it also speaks to me. It has a mouth. And the heart speaks to me in this period of time for your sake Lecha for your sake that's the way it's interpreted Lecha Amar Libi my heart says to me for your sake look seek my face what's my face the heart is saying look find the penimut the word face in Hebrew means the innermost dimension of something Panim and penimut Panim is face and penimut is inner Look, the heart says, look into yourself, into your own heart, into my own heart. My heart says to me, look into me. And if you discover the innermost point of me, of my own heart, that that's where the chilek eloka mimal mamash, the divine soul of every Jew, as we said before, the candle of God. If I look deep enough into my heart, I'll find this uh, violin playing there. The violinist is there, someplace deep inside my heart. And that's the candle of God, Nel Hashem, Nishmat Adam. It is Chofes Koch And as soon as I discover that innermost point of my own heart, then automatically I will turn to seek 
and be able to find your face. And the face of God, as we said, is even that face that Moshe Rabbeinu did not consciously know in his lifetime. But will be revealed in the future, even to Moshe Rabbeinu, who is revealed actually at two points of time. It was revealed at the moment of the receiving of the Torah. And was also revealed to him afterwards when he, at the last moment of his life, when he passed away. But God wants everything to be revealed, as we'll go on to explain, even his face, not just his back. But the only way to see God's face is to look into my own face. It's my own penimiyut. And this is the seest, as though the heart reveals to us in this month a secret. My heart says to me, I, you know, I have a secret for you, to tell you. And I'm going to tell you this secret for God's sake. Because this is the ultimate desire of God. And that secret is, look into me. And seek my face. And if you'll discover my face, then you'll be able to turn and see God's face. That's Lecha Amali Bi Bakshufanai et Panecha Hashem Avakesh. So we'll stop here for a moment, say the Chaim, and also hear a. We'll know what to think about when we hear the violin play. It should arouse our Ner Hashem, Nishmat Adam Lechaim. After the, uh, this introduction that we just tried to express, we'll now try to meditate on certain specific uh, verses and ideas that relate in particular to this coming year, which is the year Tafshin Samech Dalit. The point that we made before is that meditation is focused on something that definitely possesses meaning. Sometimes it can even be a physical object that you're studying, even scientifically, that you're trying to penetrate as deep as you possibly can into the essence of this object. 
even from modern science it's clear and this is already hundreds of years that the physical senses are most often deceptive in the terminology of the Torah it's because our world is Alma de Shikra it's a world of deceit and in order to study something even physically to know the truth the, even the physical truth of what's going on here it's not what meets the eye meaning that it requires a much deeper eye to observe deep to penetrate through and sometimes to break through a shell of apparent reality in order to reach truer reality so obviously as physics knows what's going on here that is not what meets my eye so it's employing a deeper eye than the physical eye it's also an eye to find the creator here is a much much deeper eye than the eye of the physicist so actually we can say that there are three eyes three levels to eyes there's the eye of the nefesh Bahamit of the animal soul which is the physical senses what meets the eye there's the eye of another soul called the nefesh sikhlit the intellectual soul that's the soul that the scientist employs and that reaches deeper into a deeper level of reality but it's still just the physical world it's just the, the truer I'm not saying the true because it's not the ultimate, ultimate truth but it's definitely a truer vision of the of physical reality than what meets the eye of the animal soul that's called the eye of the intellectual soul of the nefesh asichtit but the eye of the nefesh elokit, the eye of the divine soul of Israel and every single Jew is able to penetrate infinitely more into the depth of reality until once more until it sees the creator in this very moment recreating the creation ex nihilo something from nothing in this very moment that is the eye of the nefesh elokit now as soon as the nefesh elokit discovers divinity within reality there appears God's signature this is now step number two of depth of what Jewish meditation or how Jewish meditation works we'll say most meditations in the Torah are based around the model of God's four letter name that we mentioned before in the beginning of our words even though God is one and absolutely one and Einod Bilvado there is no other besides God his name which according to Chazal is his signature on everything it's like an artist a painter paints a painting and he signs his painting so says that God also he signs every iota of his creation God creates through the means of his own consciousness a, an idea which is also known are spoken about or discussed in modern physics that, are, that consciousness is crucial in 
creating, we'll say, reality, or in the existence of reality, there must be some consciousness. It's just that the scientists themselves differ as to what is that consciousness. For us, it's very clear that that consciousness is the consciousness of God. As we said, that one day, this is what Chazal themselves say, that Yom Echad means that there's only one consciousness in creation, which is Hashem's consciousness. On the second day, that we're now entering the second day, there already become two states of two levels of consciousness. But in order to create reality, there has to be first and foremost and essentially one level of consciousness, which is Hashem's consciousness. He is here and He creates, and as the Torah says, everything that He creates, He looks at, and He sees that it finds favor in His eyes, that it's good, and He signs it. Once more, He creates, He says, He speaks as it were, the words issue from his mouth, as it were. Those words create the reality, those letters, those words that issue from the mouth. Then God himself looks, observes what he creates, and when he sees that it's good, at that very moment that he decides that this is good, so he's just like a painter that finished his painting. At this moment that he finished, so that's the moment that he signs his name, his signature on the painting. And this is so for every atom and every elementary particle. Everything that God creates, he signs. And how does he sign it? He signs it Yud Kei Vav Kei. That's his signature. Meaning that the first thing that I should see if I have penetrated properly into some 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 something some focus of meditation I should discover there God's name as soon as I discover God's name so I know who is the author of this story and who is the painter of this picture because I see that he signed himself there that no one should err in identifying the source of this reality right, so those four letters obviously have infinite meaning to them the simple meaning is explained in Kabbalah is that every reality itself exists simultaneously in four worlds and each world has its letter to it the first letter of God's name Yud is the world of Atzilut which is re- related to the Sfirah to the divine power of wisdom the first, the second letter of God's name, which is the first Hey, relates to the world of creation. Where Vatsidu is called the world of emanation, created world of emanation, which corresponds to the first letter or to the sphira of wisdom, Chokhmah. The second letter is the world of creation, Priya, Odama Priya, which corresponds to Bina, to understanding. The third letter, the Vav Vashem's name, is the, that letter which signs or creates the reality in the world of Yitzirah, formation, which as a power of the soul, or an attribute of the soul, corresponds to all of the emotions of the soul, the emotive attributes, love, fear, and so on. There are six, in general, there are six of which. 
And then finally, the last letter of Hashem's name, the Hey, corresponds to this world, this lowest world of action. It's called Alamasia. And to the Sfirah, to the power of Malkut, of kingdom, or kingship. So what we're not going to do is we're going to take four, as we probably all know, Kabbalah loves to use in its meditations numbers. Numbers, numbers in a certain way reflect the most abstract level of reality. And Kabbalah, since everything is created with letters, and since in Hebrew, letters are numbers. As one of the levels of every letter is its number. Meaning that every word has its numerical value, which is the sum of the numbers of the letters that compose the word. And if you have a certain numerical value of one word, it then very likely will equal, may equal the numerical value of another word. Meaning that it would identify abstractly, at the most abstract level, an identity between these two concepts, even though the words might appear rationally to be even antithetical one from the other, opposites. But if the numerical value is the same, so it means that deep down there is some unity between these two concepts. Now, generally in Kabbalah, when a year is analyzed in accordance with its number, or the number of this year is 764. But why do I say 764? I should say 5764, 5764. Usually, almost always, the Nimazim, or the meditation that Kabbalah uses for the years, does not uh, consider the millennia. One reason means leaves out the millennia, the 5,000, and just relates to this year as it is within its millennium. Each millennium is one day of God, as the verse says in Psalms, that every day for you is a thousand years. One of the reasons that normally when a year or a number of a year is meditated upon, the millennium is left out and we just uh, look for something in the Torah that equals the number of the year beginning from the hundreds. In our case, this is just in order to explain that now we're going to examine certain very important phrases in the Torah that equals 764 which is the way that Kabbalah would meditate on the number of this new year that's coming up. So one reason that the millennium is left is omitted is because the system of the millennia is a different base than that of the hundreds and on. What do I mean by that? Chazal teaches in the Gemara that the, this world as we know it has six millennia to it, 6,000 years. Those 6,000 years themselves correspond to the six days of creation. Because once more, for God, every day has a thousand years. So if he created the world in six days, that itself implies that there is going to be 6,000 years to this world. And then the 7,000th year will be like the seventh day of creation, a day that is all Shabbat, Yom Shukur, all Shabbat. A day of just receiving the reward of all of the mitzvot ma'asim tovim, the good deeds that we did in this world. A thousand years of divine reward. 
But this world as we know it exists for a period of 6,000 years. It's also, there's even a deeper allusion to the secret of the 6,000 years in the very first verse of the Torah. Which again we're supposed to think of and say, even say today, on Kafei Elul, the day that the world was created. The first verse reads, Breshit Parai Elohim, Et HaShemayim Vetarat, In the beginning God created heavens and earth. A thousand in Hebrew, the word for a thousand is Elif. Now, Elif is the name, the letters Elif, Aleph, Samet, they spell the name of the first letter of the Torah, which is Aleph. Aleph and Elif are spelled the same. Aleph is one as a number, the letter Aleph. But the word Aleph means a thousand. Also, meaning there is some intrinsic relationship. Dafka, especially between one, unity, and a thousand. Not ten, and not a hundred, and not ten thousand, and not a million. Something between one, it's not just powers of tens, but something very, very deep between one and one thousand. So now the question is, in the first verse of the Torah itself, how many Alephs are there? Which is, how many Alephs, how many thousands are there? So if we'll visualize the first verse of the Torah, Breshit Paraya Lokimet Hashemayimet Aretz, you'll see there that there's an Aleph in the word Breshit, and there's an Aleph in the word Bara, and there's an Aleph in the word Elokim, and there's an Aleph in the word Et, and in the word Hashemayim there's no Aleph, and there's another Aleph in the word Ve'et, and a final Aleph in the word Ha'aretz, meaning that there are seven words in the verse, all have one Aleph in them except the fifth word that doesn't have an Aleph, meaning that in the first verse of the Torah there are six Alephs. But every Aleph is Aleph. So this once more is a very, very important allusion to the Torah that the world is intended to stand as we know it for a period of 6,000 years. Meaning that the millennia are based on a cycle of six and seven. But beginning from the, in, in Kabbalah, that means that the millennia correspond to the six emotions of the heart, alone. There is no one of the millennia that corresponds to the higher powers of the mind. For which reason, we find in Chazal that the Torah itself, which is the mind of God, as it were, existed 2,000 years before the world was created. Those 2,000 years is obviously just an idiom, just a metaphor, that the Torah existed 2,000. It's not years, it's not time, as we know it. It's just to say that the Torah exists at the level of wisdom and understanding, which are the two sfirot, the two emanations, lights above the six millennia of reality as we know it, that begin from Chesed. Chesed is the first of the emotions, loving kindness. Right, so once more, the millennia are based on a cycle of six, the millennia of this world. But beginning from the hundreds on, the cycle is ten, it's a decimal system. It's as though to say that the millennia is not yet based upon a decimal system. It's based on a cycle of six or seven. Whereas beginning from the hundreds, in each 
in each one of the six millennia, in each millennium, how many hundreds are there? Ten. In each hundred, how many decades are there? Ten. In each decade, how many years are there? Ten. Meaning that from the hundreds on, the base, the modulus in mathematics is ten. Whereas the millennia is a different base. And this is one reason out of many why it's customary to leave out the millennia and just to relate to the year beginning from the hundreds. So once more, it means that this year that we're now entering is year 764. Now, since we left out the millennium once more, so 764 also existed a thousand years ago and also two thousand years ago. Nonetheless, this is the meditation. After we meditate on the 764, we have to place it in the context of the sixth millennium, which is the Sefira of Yesod, Sadiq Yesod Olam. But the year, the Prat, or in rabbinic literature is called Prat Katan. Like if you see a book, it once more on this cover page of the book, it will say in what year the book was published. So if it uses the, just the, from the hundreds on, 764, it will say Lamed Pei Kuf after it, with the Gershaim between the Pei and the Kuf. Lamed Pei, what does that stand for? That stands for the Frat Katan. It's called the small Prat, the small particular number of the year that leaves out the 5,000. If it would have in it the 5,000, then it would, you, it would write afterwards Lamed Pei which is the Frat Gadol. That's the full value of the year. Nonetheless, the normal meditation is on the Prat Katan, which is, in our case, 764. This was a whole long parenthetical explanation of why the number that we're going to meditate on is 764. And that's this coming year. So, we'll now just begin. We're going to give explain what we're going to do in order to also be able to stop in the middle and listen to another Nikon from time to time we're going to give four Gematriot four very important phrases from the Torah each of which equal this number meaning that this is a preparation and meditation for the coming year and that relative to one another these four phrases themselves correspond to the four letters of Hashem's name that signature of God that he signs his name on his painting, on his work of art as one other, other very important comment, the whole of creation in the Song of Songs is called Ma'asei Yedei Amman the work of the hands of the artisan, of the, of the artist. And that the whole of creation is explicitly referred to in the Tanakh as God, the work of his hands, as an artist. So even stronger, the, the connection between an artist having created a work of art and signing his name. It's once more, signing his name is actually expanding his work to encompass four dimensions of four worlds simultaneously. Each one of these phrases corresponds to one of these worlds for this year. The first phrase 
relates very, very explicitly to what we have discussed before. It's the phrase that Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest of all prophets, says to God when he asks God at a moment of the greatest Eidratzon, he feels, he experiences that God is, is, has great will to give him what he's going to ask for. And at that is in Parashat Kitisa, before the sin of the golden calf. And he asks God, Hareni Nat show me your glory, which means reveal to me your face. We have to explain, we already had this concept of face, meaning we, we mentioned before. What is the difference, between, just in short, in Kabbalah, between, even in, in Niglin, say, even in Pshat, the difference between Hashem's face and Hashem's back? That after, even though Hashem was very willful at this moment to give Moses what he asked for, but when he asked for this, God said, that's a little bit too much. And I'm going to show you my back, but you're not going to be able to see my face. What is the back and what is the face? In the simplest uh, explanation, which even the Rambam, my mother also says, I'll preach out. The back is experiencing God in creating reality and in controlling and his providence over reality. That's the back of God. Seeing God at work. But actually when you're seeing God at work, you're only seeing his back. You're not seeing his essence. You're seeing his imminence, and you're not seeing his transcendence. That imminent light, which is called Or in Sofham and Malay that which fills worlds, that we can experience by once more by observing creation, observing how God is always involved, continuously involved in recreating and in looking over and taking care of everything that he creates. As the famous story of the Baal Shem Tov, that when he saw the leaf falling over, he examined, he looked at what's happening, what's going to happen with this leaf that fell off the tree. Until it went through many, many turns and rounds until it reached a, an ant and created a shadow and saved it from the burning rays of the sun. So he saw, by looking at that leaf falling over, he, he witnessed God. But that witnessing of God and God's providence, that's seeing God's back. God's face is that which is transcendent or in so once more at the time of greatest will of good will between God and Moses he asked God show me your glory which means show me your face and then God said no you can't see my face only my back that phrase which can one, one of the most important phrases in the whole Torah Hareini na et kvodecha, four words, equals 764. So that's the first meditation. Now, even with great Hashkacha Pratit, divine providence, in today's Tanya reading, whoever reads Tanya every day, 
So the Alter Rebbe himself says that when Moses asked for that, he was asking to reveal him, to reveal to him the inner level of Chokmada Atzilut, which is exactly the Yud of Hashem, the innermost level of the first letter of Hashem's name. So it's clear that that glory and that face that Moshe was asking for and didn't receive its revelation in particular corresponds to the Yud of Hashem's name and to the Pnimiyuti face of the Yud of Hashem's name. Which once more as a world is the world of Atzilut of emanation as a Sfirah a divine creative power and also power of the soul is the power of wisdom in the soul. So that's Harini Nat Kvodechor. So now we'll think about this once more. To meditate means to have something in mind and to try to, uh, to feel it, to experience it. And it's a means, once more, it's not just an end, it's a means. Even the words of the Torah themselves are channels through which to perceive divinity. And so now with Harini Nat Kvodechor would be very nice if someone maybe would even write it up there's not a board here but if you could uh, whoever is interested afterwards in being able to to take it home to take the meditations home so the first Geomatria important Geomatria of 764 is Hareini Na show me please your glory one more point that the word glory, there are two glories in Kabbalah. It's called Kavod Ne'etzal, the glory of emanation, which is the glory of the face. And there's Kavod Nivra, created glory, which is also glory of God, but as God's glory is manifest and revealed, reflected in creation. And that's the glory of his back. That's why the back also has glory. That's called Kavod Nivra created glory of God the face has its glory that's called kavod ne'etzal the glory of God's essential emanation of light to himself as it were transcending reality that's what Moses was asking for et your glory your means your essential level of glory the second very beautiful phrase is an idiom that comes from the book of Judges in the story of Shimshon Agibor. It's called the riddle of Samson. The riddle that he presented before the Plishtim, the Philistines. And that riddle, the, the idiom is so potent that has become a very, very general phrase that you can even hear in spoken Hebrew on the streets when someone will want to say that something apparently bad has been turned into good or that you see that in truth it's good, it's not bad. So the phrase is Mi'az Yatsamatuk. This from the bold or the mighty has come out the sweet. So first of all, this is a phrase that uh, pertains very nicely to to the new year, because the new year we the first minig that we do, the first custom, the first the Rosh Hashanah is to dip the a already sweet 
apple into the vase, into honey, and then to wish the bench that we should have a good and sweet year. In the riddle itself of Shimshon, the sweetness is honey. So it's even more related. What is the boldness? The boldness of the lion. What was the riddle? The riddle was that he himself had been attacked by a lion and defeated and killed the lion. And then in the carcass of the lion, bees came and made a hive in the lion. And when he came back the next season, he took honey out of the life. So, at the end, when the riddle is solved, the solution to the riddle is, what is bolder than a lion, and what is sweeter than honey? And that's what you meant when you said, Mi'az matok, that from boldness came out sweetness. But this very, very uh, sensory, we'll call it, uh, idiom, once more has become a very common idiom of speech, equals 764. And that this coming year is a year of seeing and experiencing and knowing that from what had been considered the boldness, boldness in the Pshatir of boldness is something which is which is a fearful and a negative in its implication. But now from that itself has come out the sweetest of the sweet, the honey, the honey of creation. The verb is in the past tense, meaning that it already has happened meaning that we don't have to have any more boldness. From what was bold and mighty, once more in a negative sense, has already come out, it's in the past tense, mi'az yatsa matok, from the az has come out sweetness. Alright, so this is phrase number two that we may meditate upon that equals the year to come. Why is this number two? Why do we identify this with the first hey, the second letter of Hashem's name, which is the first hey of Yudke Vavke? Because the first hey, which is Bina in Kabbalah, is the place, the spiritual place, the transformation of severity into sweetness takes place. If something appears to be severe, like a severe judgment in our world, and we want to transform it into sweetness and goodness, the concept and the phrase in Kabbalah and Hasidu is that it has to be made return to its source, and in its source it can reverse itself or become transformed into goodness, or from darkness into light, or from bitterness into sweetness. What is that source of the severity that if you bring it back to its source, it can change into goodness and sweetness? That's Bina, understanding. Because all the severity is in the lower Svirot, 
that correspond to the existence of this world, as we said before, that this world has to do with six, with the six emotive levels. There, there can be severities, and hardships, and troubles. But in the mother, understanding is called the mother, in order to sweeten something, it has to return, when we say to return to the source of the severity, that's called, it has to return to the womb. If something, if some child has been born with severity, so if it's able to return him to the womb, he can be reborn with sweetness, with goodness, with perfection and rectification. So this is a very general principle in Kabbalah, that Atzilut, the first letter of Hashem's name, is essentially good. There can't ever be there any severity in the first place. Actually, as we explained before, it's God's transcendent, essential light, which is above the whole syndrome of what's called in Kabbalah, Shviravatikun, of the breaking of the vessels. And the severity comes from the vessels being broken and then becoming rectified, or the scenario of death and resurrection. That all of these things begin from Binar, the world of Briya and Dan, not in Atzilut, not in the Yud of Hashem's name. The Yud of Hashem's name is just Hashem's essential glory, as, as Moshe Rabbeinu asked to see. Hareini nat kvodecha, show me your glory. But in the Hay, the first Hay, that's where severities are transformed into sweetness. In fact, that's one of the essential kavanot that we have every year, not just this year, when we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, that we ask Hashem, this is part of the, of the, of the intention, the kavanah of blowing the shofar, we ask Hashem to stand up from the throne of severity, of deen, of judgment, of severe judgment, and sit down on the throne of mercy and compassion. So once more, where does that take place? That takes place in the mind level of Bina, of understanding the mother. That's why the shofar itself, even symbolically, represents a womb. And the blast of the shofar, the voice that comes out of the shofar, is a new birth. Just like the year is being born anew, and the new light that was never yet in the world is being born anew into the world. So that's what the shofar is. The shofar in Kabbalah itself is called the womb of the mother. That is the object of the shofar. So what does it do? It takes as it as to speak it influences, arouses God to stand up from judging the world with severity and to sit down, meaning to decide to judge the world with mercy and compassion. So this phrase is one of the most important phrases, if not the most important phrase of the whole Bible that expresses succinctly this idea of severity being transformed into sweetness. Mi'az Yatsa Matok. So now we have two to meditate upon. These two of the Yudande and the first Tay are called two companions that never part.
are never separate from another. The Yud in the first day. So for us it's Hareini night Kvodecha and Mi'az Yatsamatov. The first hay of Hashem's name is called the world to come in Tabala, Olam Abba. Because once for this world are the six Sfirot below it, which correspond to the third letter of Hashem's name, the Vav. Together with the last letter of Hashem's name, which is absolutely this physical world that we experience. But even the Vav is, is itself as a part of our physical experience, but the experience of our reality. But the first Hay of Hashem's name is called Olam Abbas, the world to come. So what is the nature of the world to come? It says that in this world there are two blessings. That if something good happens, we say Atova Ametiv. If something good to our senses happens, we say Atova Ametiv. If something bad happens to our senses, then there's another place. We have to bless Hashem and even with Simcha, the Kibudi Simcha, even bad things that happen. But the bad things happen to our mind the words of the blessing are different we say Dayan Ha'emet but in the world to come to say an expression in the Talmud in the world to come there will just be one blessing the fact that even in this world we are told, we are instructed and commanded to make both blessings with simple, with joy is already an hamtaka, a sweetening of the severity. Whereas there is a common denominator that we're supposed to receive both with joy. Nonetheless, we express them verbally differently, oppositely. But in the world to come, not only is all joy, but all is just uniformly expressed as Babuchata Shema Tova that if you have done good to me as well as having done good to all to everyone it's called Atov Li Vahamitiv Vahachirim Metiv to everyone all is good and it's good for me and it's good for all it's not something that maybe is good for one person not good for another person it's universally good so once more, this idea, this verse of Mi'az Yatamatok, that from bold has come out sweet, so that also alludes to the world to come, that the world to come is all sweet. And it's all one sweet blessing of Hatova Metiv. And that's, uh, if that's alluded to in this year, in this coming year, means that we're about to enter the world to come. That's a uh, that's now part of our meditation of the second the second letter of Hashem's name we're taught that from Chai Elul on until the end of the year there are 12 days and each of those 12 days is a rectification of one of the 12 months of the outgoing year according to that analysis correspondence today, Cafe, the first day of creation corresponds to the Chodesh Iyar of the previous year. And the day that we're now entering, which is the second day of creation, the day that the Rakia, the firmament was created to separate between the higher waters and the lower waters, corresponds to the month of Sivan. 
Then afterwards, after tomorrow, Kafav, we have Kafzayin, Kafchet, and Kafet, another three days left after tomorrow, which will correspond to Tammuz and Avon Elul. The last day of Elul, which is Kafet Elul itself, is the rectifying this month itself of Elul. And then we enter into the new year. But this day that we're now entering right now as a month is the month of Sivan, which is the month of the giving of the Torah to Am Yisrael. Meaning that today in Elul we have a special special meditation and contemplation to try to experience and to, to rectify something means to do it better than we did it. However much we celebrated the holiday of Shuas and the giving of the Torah this year and tried to re-experience that giving the Torah, now we have a chance to even do it better today. Dafka today to experience the giving of the Torah. Why is the giving of the Torah every year identified in Elul with the same day on which God separated the higher waters from the lower waters by the means of the firmament. So the Arizal explains that even though this is the second day and there are already two levels of consciousness, not just one as was on the first day, nonetheless the true secret of the firmament between the higher and the lower waters depicts the picture of an olive. That the line in the middle of the olive is the firmament and the yud above to the right is the, are the higher waters and the yud to the bottom are the lower waters and if there is any uh, breakage or severance in the writing of an olive so it becomes disqualified, it becomes possible the olive, it all must be connected it all must be one even though there is a ferment here separating the higher waters from the lower waters it's all one olive and the Rizal says that that olive itself is the first letter of the ten commandments which is the first letter of the giving of the Torah to Israel so there's a representation in this in the second day of creation, a relationship to the giving of the Torah, beginning with the Aleph of Anochi, of I am Hashem, your God that has taken you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. A little bit deeper, water, Chazal say that water in general refers to the Torah. En Mayim Ela Torah, there is no water except for the water of the Torah. There are many meanings in Kabbalah to the higher waters and the lower waters. Vis-a-vis the Torah itself, the higher waters are the inner dimension of the Torah. As if we study and try to understand and internalize the deeper secrets of the Torah, which is Kabbalah and Chassidut, so we're trying to swim in the sea of the higher waters. If we learn the revealed level of the Torah, which are the laws of the Torah, the Gufa, the body of the Torah, then we are swimming also in the sea of the Torah, those are the lower waters. This is all in relation to the Torah itself. But the truth is that we are commanded to unite the two through the means of the firmament, meaning that ultimately the firmament is not for the sake of dividing and splitting the two apart, it's just identifying each dimension in itself and ultimately to unite them. That once more there can be no split between the olive, the, the, in, in the 
three components of the Aleph between the higher Yud and the Vav, which is the Rakia, the firmament, and the lower Yud, which are the lower waters. How do we see that? Even in Nigle, even the Vilna Gon said explicitly that a rabbi that does not know the secret of an halacha is not qualified to paskin halacha in Nigle. If you don't know the dimension, the inner dimension, but you're the higher waters of the Torah, and you're not conscious of the higher waters while you're involved with deciding the law in accordance with the lower waters, then you are not able and qualified to decide the law. This is a very clear, this is coming from the Vilnagon himself, that you have to, the Vilnagon is saying you have to learn Hasidus. You have to learn Kabbalah Hasidus in order to be, in order to be a rabbi, otherwise you can't be a rabbi. That's what, that's what he says. So that has to do with this day, with the second day of creation, which corresponds to the month of Sivan. Now, why do we make this? Because this is now going to relate to the third Geomatria that, uh, that equals 764. When the Torah was given to us at Mount Sinai, so there's also a very, very beautiful idiom that reads, and it's directly related to everything that we've said this evening, that reads panim bifanim diber Hashem imachem. Face to face, God spoke to you. This is the way Moshe Rabbeinu describes to the Jewish people how God gave us the Torah. He gave it to us panim bifanim. Now it's interesting. This phrase, first of all, this phrase equals 764. This is our third Geomatria. Panim bifanim diber Hashem Face to face, God spoke to you. Referring to the experience of Matan Torah. Nonetheless, if we meditate upon these words, panim bifanim, so it's not panim el panim. When God speaks to Moses, the phrase is panim el panim, face to face, that's more literally face to face. Here the phrase is panim bifanim, which if we would translate it literally, it would read face in face, like interface, face in face, God spoke to you. So what does that mean in Kabbalah? It means that there are two levels of face, and the words came out of the interface of one face inside another face. I'll try to explain it once, but these are deep things in Kabbalah. I'll try to explain it in short. That the higher face is called the long extended face. The terminology of Kabbalah is called Arichan, being the long face. And the second face is called the small face, the Eranpin. And the experience of the Torah being given to us is that the long face, we'll explain what that means enters into the small face and that's the experience that you have when we are receiving the Torah from the, from the mouth of God. So what does the long face mean? What does the small face mean? The five, in the simplest of terms, the small face is the Vav of Hashem's name. is the level of the world of formation or the emotions of the soul. 
Why is that called a small face? Because small face as an idiom in Hebrew means the possibility of becoming angry. Ktsar apayim. It's small face is like short breath. Small is the same as short. And if a person has short breath, it means he is able to become angry. That's the pshat. It's called ktsar and ze'er an pin in Aramaic. The word for this term in Kabbalah of small face is ze'er an pin. That's a translation of the Hebrew idiom in the Tanakh, ktsar apayim. Face and nose are the same word or come from the same two letter subroot in the in Hebrew. So a small face means a short nose. The Ibn Ezra al-Pipshat says, why do Jews have long noses? Because they breathe deeply and they have the power to, to sweeten anger, to overcome the tendency, the Yitzhara, to become angry. And by that, they also arouse on God the very same. What is called Erech Apayim. The long face is called the long nose. That's where it comes from in, he, in the original Hebrew. Once for Arichan, in the long face is the Aramaic. Its Hebrew equivalent is Erech Apayim, which means long nose, long breath. And long breath means, as an idiom in Hebrew, infinite patience and never getting angry. So once for the idea, the, the secret of face in face means that the long face as a sfirah, the long face is even a level which is above wisdom above the yud of Hashem's name it's called the tip at the top of the yud or in the terminology of Kabbalah it's called the crown the super conscious or super rational crown as we said before meditation uses, employs intellect but it reaches a level that transcends intellect that itself is represented symbolically by the yud that the Yud is the first initial point or flash of insight across the mind but it has, the Yud itself has a tip at the top which is pointing to that which transcends intellect altogether and that which transcends intellect altogether itself is the source at the same time it transcends and it's also the ultimate source of the this point of the flash, the initial flash of the mind. That source above wisdom itself, the crown, is the long face. In the terminology once more of the Zohar, the way the Zohar says it, it says that the small face is rooted in the long face. That is Zaba Tikatalia, that's the words of the Zohar. And the when the Torah was given, Hashem's the Torah was given with the Tanai, the condition, as Rashi himself says in the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments were given, that if you'll keep them, you'll be rewarded, and if you transgress them, you will be punished. That very idea that, that, that this, is, this is a serious, uh, a serious thing for you, you better take this seriously. Because if you do it right, you're going to be rewarded. If you do it wrong, then you're going to be punished. Where is that coming from? That's coming from the small face. Because that's the face means that if you do it right, I'm going to be happy with you. 
and I'll reward you if you do it. If you don't do what I tell you to do, like the father says, the, the small-faced father, the small, uh, a father with a with a short nose, he'll say to his kid, to his son, if you obey me, then you know, you'll get your candy bar. But if you don't obey me, you're going to get patched because I'm going to you're going to make me angry. Obviously, when God gets angry, he doesn't truly get angry. But it just appears that he gets angry. He says to his to his kid, to the son, "You're going to make me angry. If you make me angry, you're going to you're going to get it." That's the small face. But the Torah was given in such a way that even though the small face was present, we knew or experienced that inside that small face, there's another face. And that face is the true, infinitely long face, which means that no matter what, in the end, Hashem is going to forgive us. And even as explained in Kabbalah, that ultimately it will become revealed that we never sinned in the first place. No matter what we did. That is such a deep thing that we can't even begin to explain. But that revelation is already potentially there from the very words of the Torah that there is a long, infinitely patient and forgiving face. It's like, once more, the Torah was given face in face. That's the idiom. Panim b'fanim. So again, it's like looking at your father and your father is making a, a severe face or telling you that what I'm telling you, you have to obey what I'm telling you because as we said before, it's serious. But if the child is very, very insightful, and this insight comes obviously with great love for his father, and faith in the absolute goodness of his father, then if he merits, he'll be able to perceive in that short face the long face inside that, hiding there, but yet present, and he'll be able to reveal it, the long face in the short face. That is the secret of the tikkun of the Vav of Hashem's name. The Vav of Hashem's name in itself is Ze'er Anpin, which is the short face, or the short nose. But it is eluded or dependent upon the long face. And when the Torah was given, that was the we merited that experience. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu is trying to impress upon us forever. Not to forget that the Torah was given to us panim fanim, one face inside another face. That we saw there two faces of God, one in the other, when the Torah was given. Since in order to experience anything in relation to Hashem to God, we have to try to manifest the same in ourselves. So this is obviously a Musa teaching an ethical, moral teaching for each one of us that always to have the long face we also have a long face the infinitely patient face within and already ready to overcome the short face so as for this is not like the previous illusion, the previous verse and illusion was that the Boldness has totally transformed into sweetness. This is saying that in the 
small face there is nonetheless present the infinite potential of forgiveness and of atonement and wiping away even retroactively wiping away sin altogether and that's the experience once more that in the words of the Torah face in face God spoke with you Spoken with, speaking with you, Diber, that's Aserat HaDibot. The Ten Commandments are called the Ten Sayings. The Ten Things that Hashem spoke. And He spoke them all in a state of Panim Pefanim. So this is the third meditation. The third very central phrase in the Torah that equals 764 this coming year. It's third because we're understanding it to correspond to the third level of the third letter of Hashem's name, the Vav of Hashem's name. The fourth of our Remazim of Tavshin Samachdalet is a verse from Psalms, also a very, very well-known verse. Maybe before we say it, we'll just make a remark that may, t- may uh, be important for someone to hear. It's, you might think that there are an unlimited number of uh, phrases in the Torah that equal 764. That is not the case. Obviously, there are more than four, but it's definitely a very relatively limited number, especially of full phrases. So, the fact that we're now choosing is we're not choosing just out of the hat, out of an infinite number of possibilities. We are choosing out of several, maybe 10, 15 significant phrases in the Torah that equal this number. But it's not too many. That's just an important thing to know statistically. So our fourth one, which is the, the final one that corresponds to the last letter of Hashem's name, the Hey of Hashem's name, is, is a verse from Tehillim that we probably all know this, uh, or many of us know this phrase, it reads, Kol Kfuda Bat Melech Pnima. This is a verse that pertains especially to women. As we know that the woman figure corresponds to the final Hey of Hashem's name, the Makut of Hashem's name. And every Jewish woman is a princess. And every soul of every Jew, whether man or woman, is also a princess related to God because we're all the bride of the song of songs God is the groom and we're the bride and each one of us that soul, that very soul which is which is the violin the candle of God is very often spoken of as a princess maybe we have some of us have read and know the first of the 13 stories of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, which is called Avidat Bat Medach, and many other stories and allegories throughout the Torah that the Jewish people either as a whole or every single Jewish soul is a princess. And this is one of maybe the most important verse that describes the, the nature of a true princess and it says Kol Kfuda Bat Melech Pnima the all of the glory so that's why we have here a word that we've seen before 
the very same words and concepts that we've been talking about this evening from beginning appear here also in this verse. All of the glory of the princess is inside, is penima. But that word penima is the same word as face. Everything that we've been discussing about the face, beginning from the first of our phrases, which is, Hashem, which is Moshe Rabbeinu asking Hashem to reveal his face, which is his kavod, the higher glory. This now, the final verse, is the glory of Malchut, the glory of kingdom, which is the glory of the princess. And all of the glory of the princess is inside. What does that mean? The simple meaning is that the glory of the princess is her modesty. Which would then mean that one of the things to emphasize this year, Tafshin Samachdalat, is modesty. It's a year of Kok Fuda Bat Medach Pnima. So that's a very, very beautiful phrase to be able to think of and even give over to other people that we're now, maybe of all of these phrases, this is the most pertinent one to Hamaise Hu Aikra, the Rebbe always used to say that we have to take to heart something that we can apply in Maise before Mamash. So now, since we're entering a year that equals Kol Kivuda Bat Melech all of the glory of the princess is inside. So this is a year of modesty. Now you might think mistakenly that that means that a princess never leaves the house. That women should never go outside. And if you're a husband, you might tell your wife, go home and tell your wife that oh, we're coming into a year don't leave, don't leave the house. So that obviously is a fatal mistake. As the Rebbe, as the Rebbe explained, do not interpret that verse to mean that women are not allowed out of the house if you want to be a princess but if you don't want to be a princess so you can you can go wherever you want but if you want to be a princess and you want to have the glory of a princess you better stay and stay at home that's not necessarily or really what it means especially in our times in our generation modesty is a inner attribute and characteristic of the soul it's called sniut which is the most important attribute of a woman, but it applies to a man as well. And the most important verse in the whole Tanakh, in the whole Bible, that this talks about Sniut, is the phrase, walk humbly with God. And there we see that, that, that walk modestly, not humbly. Modestly is the real word, Sniut, even though usually it's translated as humbly. Hum, humbleness is anava. Modesty is the attribute which especially applies to women is the modesty attribute sniut. and once more the verse is and the modesty it doesn't say there is the modesty of dress for instance in general I identify modesty not just as staying at home but as, as dress, dressing modestly but from the most important verse in the whole Bible that talks about modesty, we see that the emphasis of modesty is not even how, much, how you dress. Obviously, it has to do with how you dress as well. But it's how you walk. It says, walk modestly with God. It doesn't say, dress modestly with God. Or for the sake of God. It says, Hatsnea lechet. 
What does that? Mean? What does it mean to to walk modestly? The, the simple meaning, as explained in Chassidut, is that the person does not publicize his deeds. In the very base language, a person never shows off. To show off in Chassidus is like the worst possible character trait that is. It's called a blito. And a person who innately, we say, hates showing off. That's the most positive attribute. That is, that's identical with sniut. That means that everything that you do is bipnimius. He said that this is the day of receiving the Torah in the month of Elul. This is the day of the giving of the Torah which corresponds to the month of Sivan within the month of Elul. The customary blessing of receiving the Torah that the Rebbe in Chabad always used, the Rebbe always said every single year on Shavuot, the blessing is to receive the Torah with joy and pnimius. So once more, Pneumius means that you're doing things really for their own sake and, and there's nothing worse than showing off. Showing off is immodest. And this is the greatest attribute, a feminine attribute. And that means that you're, in, you're doing things Inside, you're not doing things for the sake of the outside. God is on you. God is on the outside. God should be publicized. Abraham, the first Jew, devoted his whole life and was willing every instant of his life to give up his life to die in order to to reveal God, not in order to reveal himself. Well, that's the real meaning of pinimius, which is always inside. So it's how you walk, just the opposite. To be really modest only shows itself how you go out of the house, not how you stay inside the house. The test, the trial of modesty is how you walk outside, not how you stay locked in your house, inside. That is the test of modesty. Are you inside when you're walking outside. And God definitely wants us all, both men and women, especially in our generation, to walk outside to spread the truth and the light of the Torah, or in the simple terminology of the, of the Rabbi Tadumi Tzoyim, who was the first Jewish woman? Sarah, Sarah The Torah explicitly says that when the angels came, to give the tiding that he, she had been barren for so many decades and that she was about miraculously to, to bear a child, Yitzchak, you know. So they wanted to arouse Abraham's love for her. This Rashi explains in the Chumash. And so they said to Abraham, they asked him, where is Sarah? And he said he neighbored that she's in the tent. And that was an association that she's modest. And since she's modest inside the tent, so that arouses the love of the husband, the modesty of the wife. 
Now, so once more, you might think that that is just literal, that you always stayed at home, that you never left the tent. But we find about Sarah that Chazal say that Sarah did not, didn't always stay at home because he said that both of this, this, this couple, if there's one couple that devoted their life to teaching Torah, to a Torah at that time in teaching that there is God, and God on earth, and divine providence, so that was this couple. Of this couple it says, Etanefesh, they were partners. They were partners in creating their Bet Chabad, their Chabad house, but also their outreach. And they tried to reach out, and they were successfully reached out to hundreds of thousands of souls. And the verse says, Et HaNefesh Asher Asu that they made souls, means they brought souls to realize, to recognize Hashem. And on that verse, it doesn't say that he made souls. Abraham says that they made souls. This was long before they merited to have biological, physical children. One child together. Et HaNefesh Asher Asu How did they make souls? So Chazal interpreted that means that Abraham that Abraham went out, reached out to to bring close the men, and Sarah at the same time went out to be Mekarev the women. Means that they acted totally as a pair, that Sarah, that Abraham is working with the men and Sarah is working with the woman. At the same time she is the epitome of modesty. And even at the age of a hundred or ninety-nine and, and eighty-nine, that was the time of the story, so the angels aroused the love of Abraham for Sarah by noting her modesty. So once more, modesty does not mean to stay at home. Modesty means how you walk outside, especially in our generation, how the woman goes out to also spread the word and to bring lost souls back to our Father in Heaven. So this is the final remise of this year. That once more we have here the concept of glory, and together with the concept of face, or in innerness, insideness, panema, we'll say one more thing, that before we were talking about the higher waters and the lower waters, that in the Torah itself the higher waters are the, the inner dimension of the Torah, and the lower waters are the revealed laws and body of the Torah which is and they have to also go together men are commanded to learn both as we said before you can't be a rabbi if you don't know both women are privileged that they can spend most of their time just learning Kabbalah and Chassidus when, when a woman once asked the Rebbe, a woman, this is a true story that I was also involved with, that asked the Rebbe if women can learn Kabbalah, which means from the classic Kabbalah, text of Kabbalah, like Eitzchayim, the, the writings of the Arizal, and the Sefer Azor HaKadosh. So the Rebbe wrote a long letter, and the, what he said in the letter is that that the inner dimension of the Torah is obviously necessary for women, and for women, that's the in a certain way, they can and should devote themselves more to it than even men, because men have to devote themselves to both. 
both levels of the Torah. And women have to know the laws that pertain to women, but plus that, they don't have to study Gemara all day. And what they should, if they have time, and they should have time, that's what all, that's what our modern world is, is trying and to make time for people to have time to devote themselves to the inner dimension of the Torah. So the, the Rabbi writes that in the inner dimension of the Torah there are two types of texts. There is the inner dimension of the Torah as revealed by the Baal Shem Tov and the Atur Rebbe Hasidus, and that's for everyone. And that has to be instructed to learn. means that both men and women in a certain way, especially women, have to you have to go out and explain that this is the most important thing that you have to study. This is it. This is where it's at. This is what you need spiritually. When it comes to the classic Kabbalah texts, this again the words, write the letter of a Rebbe answering a woman that asked the question, when it comes to studying Yitzchayim, this woman, in this particular story, is a woman that didn't want to fall short of her husband. That if my if my husband is studying Yitzchayim, I also have to study Yitzchayim. So for a woman to study Yitzchayim, not because Yitzchayim is any more panemius than Hasidus, just maybe the opposite, but it's very, very technical. The Rebbe said that that's not something that you tell every woman to study the classic text of Kabbalah, but any woman that desires on her own to study the classic text of Kabbalah, it's 100% okay. There's no problem. This is a letter that the Rebbe writes. Even for men, it was a problem to study Kabbalah before, in previous generations. For everybody, you had to be very, very on a high level to be, be worthy of studying Kabbalah from the classic text. Here the Rabbi says that you don't go out and tell women that you have to read Zohar and study Eitzchayim and Shara Kavonos. But if any woman so desires herself, sincerely from her heart, it's perfectly okay. What is necessary it's, it's absolute necessary for the spiritual life of every Jewish soul whether man or woman is Hasidut but especially women can in a certain way can devote themselves more solely to Hasidut even than men so what does this mean? it means that if this year is a year that equals its Geomachia this fourth Geomachia is that all of the glory of the princess is inside it means that this is a year a special year that women have to create more and more opportunities meaning classes to study together penima, the inner dimension of the Torah so not saying that men don't have to do it if men also understand that my soul is also a princess I also want to be a princess so we all want to be princesses. So, so uh, we all, if we want to be a princess, and we all have to, we all have to create more and more chugim as groups, both as individuals and even more so as groups. And matov, how great it is if it's the Armenian, as the Rebbe said, the ten Jews together learning to learn Hasidus. 
which is Pnimis Atero. And from that comes all the blessings. The blessings begin from the essential blessing of witnessing God in the world. And that comes from learning and meditating upon the teachings of Hasidus. So with this will conclude, we'll hear another, another final nigun. And after this nigun, whoever hasn't the Davin Mariv, so we'll make a minion here on Merz Hashem. And so once more we'll conclude with a very, very good and sweet year, Aksiva Chasina Teva, Hashem Teva Musukan, which have all of these revelations that we talked about this year, of God revealing to us His essential glory and all of what was in the past year severe, will immediately become sweet and honey and that always in the the face, the short face that we that we uh, show to to the other will be present and visible the long infinitely patient face and finally that our that the point of the inner point of our soul which is the princess will become revealed in all of her glory inside when she's walking outside and doing Mivsoim and bringing the Shamas back to, to Yiddishkeit and study, especially studying Chasidus, it should all be pnimit with the innermost face. The Sharanun that Moshe Rabbeinu, to, to, in order to, to return and wedge, it's called the end to the beginning, that that glory of the princess should become one also with the same glory that Moshe Rabbeinu asked. Hashem to reveal to them. We shall all have this in this year. Echo of Miyad Mamash, but the coming of Mashiach, the Chaim Chaim. You have been listening to a lecture by Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg, recorded and presented to you free of charge by Dalina Institute. Your donation will help us to bring an ever-expanding selection of quality audio lectures by Rabbi Ginsburg. Dalina Institute is a non-profit organization and all donations are tax-deductible in the USA. To donate, just click on the Donate button on the Inner Dimension homepage at www.inner.org www.inner.org in Hebrew, Galinai means, open my eyes. These words are from the verse in Psalms, open my eyes, that may behold the wonders of your Torah. Under the leadership of Rabbi Ginsburg, our goal is to open the world's eyes to the light of the inner dimension of Torah, to discover God, and to connect to Him in all that we do. As we learn from the Baal Shem Tov, spreading this light will hasten the complete and true redemption. We invite you to join the Galinai team and participate with Rabbi Ginsburg in learning, teaching, and spreading the inner dimension of Torah, Kabbalah, and Hasidut. Together, the Galenai team will change the world, bringing God's loving kindness, health, happiness, and true peace to all. For more information about Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsburg's teachings and how to participate with the Galenai team, visit the Inner Dimension website at www.inner.org www.inner.org or email us at inner at inner.org.